we are live um hey. I, I, I have my friend vaishnavi who i studied with um in 11th and 12th uh, in the same batch uh, hi vaishnavi hi hasan how are you doing i'm doing great how are you we're doing good thank you um vaishnavi is currently in the us uh, which part of uh, the us uh, vaishnavi I live in Pittsburgh now which is closer to New York and mm-hmm. um, I work for Utah based company so I've been remote for almost like 10 months now so yeah nice what well, tell, tell us a little more about what you do and uh, mm-hmm. you know how your journey has been mm-hmm. for sure so I moved to the US in 2016 to do a masters in computer science and while i was still pursuing my masters in computer science i got interested in healthcare technologies and with with computer science and my masters thesis was based on that like healthcare technology with machine learning so i was interested in that domain and ended up getting a job in the same domain itself as a machine learning engineer and the company i work for is called freely Freely is a medical technology artificial intelligence startup. What they kind of do is analyze human DNA, the whole human genome, to predict health risks and provide recommendations to help alleviate the symptoms of the diseases they might be suffering from, or just in general to lead a healthier life. So this is how it started out, and I joined Freely in 2018, and Right now I work as a lead machine learning engineer where I lead two different teams. One is a team that uh, works on drug dosage recommendation system and another one is the core artificial intelligence itself. Mm. So yeah, that's pretty much what I do. <laughs> that's maybe a brief. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um I think <laughs> you know machine learning is everywhere and it's great to uh, kind of hear someone in the field of healthcare uh, implementing that and making lives better right that's exactly what i thought when i joined like i was interviewing with so many of uh, so many other companies but hmm. i never felt like the passion to go join any of them as soon as i heard their idea i was reading some fiction a science fiction when hmm. i was interviewing with this company and that was talking about like gene markers and how how you can predict the onset of a disease before it actually happens mm-hmm. because of your genes and then this company was doing exactly that and yeah i was just like blown away by it and yeah that's why i started working for this company nice which book were you reading if you don't mind me asking i think i was reading robin cook a book mm-hmm. called cure it it is an old book i think from the early 90s or late 80s right but yeah that that was the book it's reading nice. nice pretty yeah. interesting um so uh, we've you know spoken briefly about um cbd and um mm-hmm. you know some of the things that you're into um because of that mm-hmm. uh, can you tell us right. a little bit about cbd and its effect yeah absolutely so to actually tell you about cbd i will have to explain about thc which is tetrahydrocannabinol 
which is the component or chemicals cannabinoid that's found in marijuana. CBD is also found in marijuana, but in lesser amounts. CBD is mostly found in a plant called hemp. So THC is the one which has all the psychoactive properties, which makes people high when they smoke it or consume it in any other form. And both CBD and THC affect endocannabinoid system in, in the human body. So there, it, our body is actually designed in such a way that, you know, it, it can handle all of these different chemicals. And the, the way it handles also be, is based on how your genetic makeup is. Both CBD and THC have exactly the same molecular structure actually with 21 carbon atoms, 30, 30 hydrogen atoms, and two oxygen atoms. Mm. But the slight difference in the structure is what makes each of these chemicals have very different effects on the body itself. Mm. So like I said before, THC causes the high. Mm. And it's because of this chemical that's present in the brain called anandamide, which mm. is produced by our body. and Anandamide binds some receptors in the body. The, re, these receptors are, the, are part of the endocannabinoid system, which are called CB1 and CB2. And anandamide binds to these receptors. Since anandamide and THC have very similar structures, chemical structures, what happens is THC goes and binds to CB1 and CB2 receptors, thereby altering the whole body's function. That's why there's that perception of high. Hmm. Anandamide, being a neurotransmitter, sends messages through the nervous system. And it impacts your memories, your pleasure, your thinking, your concentration. I don't know if you've ever smoked THC, but if you have, you would have noticed that the perception of time changes. You feel like everything is moving slower than it should be. Right. And that, that's because of anandamide because THC has replaced anandamide at these receptor points. Hmm. So what CBD does is it actually enhances anandamide, enhances the production and binding of anandamide to these CB1 and CB2 receptors, hmm. which is why it impacts appetite, mood, pain management, sleep, anxiety, stress, everything. It alleviates symptoms of all of these. Mm. And that's, that's exactly why it happens. And there are a lot more chemicals in marijuana and hemp called CBG, CBN. CBN is mostly used for sleep. Mm. It induces sleep. And yes, I mean, there are, there's not a lot of research done on this because only now has it been discovered or are they making it legal to actually use and conduct clinical trials on all of these? Yeah. But yeah, this, this is exactly how it works. Do you have any questions? Yeah. yeah. So actually, uh, I also wanted to understand, uh, it's a great explanation, by the way, of, uh, you know, how mm -hmm. CBD uh, and, you know, works in the body, what receptors it binds into mm -hmm. and THC, uh, you know, how it works in the body. Um, is there any, um, you know, way that you have um, kind of not prescribed uh, is there any mm -hmm. basic research that's been done where through your machine learning processes or anything like that mm -hmm. you have recommended cbd to someone 
or uh, yes yes yeah. of course yeah so yeah do that's you want to finish the about? question okay cool yeah uh, that's exactly what that system does so i'll tell you what it does and how it's prescribed and what happens to the people hmm. So um, the system, basically what it does is it draws from the core artificial intelligence of the company, which is one of the products. It looks at all the genes. The genes basically say how, how harmful a gene is or a mutation is to the body. And it's not just like, it, it gives you basically a, a percentage. Like this is 30% bad to your body. This is 90%, so you should be concerned. That, that's the kind of numeric scale that's used. And that, that number is that those numbers from all of these genes are used in the machine learning itself to make accurate predictions of the dosage. So what the user gets to do is, he says he comes to the doctor, there is a telemedicine part for it where it's prescribed because it's not legal in many states, mm -hmm. but a patient with some chronic pain comes to the doctor he says, hey doc, I'm facing these issues and no matter what I'm doing, this pain doesn't seem to alleviate in my body at all. So what we do is we run his genetics, we check what's going on, and we know that CBD helps treat pain. And he says, I'm more comfortable smoking in the form of a vape or an edible or a sublingual tincture or oil, whatever it is, whatever form of administration he's most comfortable using. We prescribe that and based on the form of administration, the dosage is, is varied because the amount that's bioavailable to the body is different when in, in each form of administration. Because right. if it's an edible, it hits late. Even with THC, it takes like three hours or four hours to, for the body to actually start feeling the effects. And some genetics exist where they tend to metabolize all of these chemicals faster than regular humans, whether it's caffeine or whether it's alcohol or THC, CBD. So it's important for people to get the right dosage for them to help alleviate their pain. So the doctor prescribes it, he writes a prescription and says, hey dude, go take this. And, and it's, it's actually based on the number of hours, every five hours or every six hours, take this amount of this product to help alleviate the symptoms. So there, there have been people that are tied to like our doctors and we have their data and they have tried it and it has helped them with their pain. So one girl, she had broken her hand skiing. Hmm. And what happens is in the US, they generally prescribe opioids after surgery. But yeah. what happens is people get addicted to it and most people do not want to take it. They're looking for other ways out to you know get rid of the pain yeah. and cpd is the best option because it doesn't cause an addiction at all hmm. so one that girl she took the prescribed dosage of cbd from us and yeah her symptoms were so much better and she was able to manage the pain better so it, it's all it's so much based on genetics and genetic makeup of what the right dosage is what works for you it's hmm. it's very unique to each individual too. So yeah, that's about. Yeah, it. I think uh, the opioid crisis is so huge uh, in the U.S. Right, uh, where they yeah. prescribed all these um, opioid uh -huh. uh, painkillers and stuff. I think uh -huh. CBD 
could be like a potential savior in many of those cases it is but the problem here is like very few states have legalized the use of medical marijuana itself mm-hmm. and a lot of states haven't but cbd is right now starting to become increasingly available even in states where the laws are kind of strict right so canada is a very great place like the whole country it's all it's a free country and anybody mm-hmm. can use marijuana or any components of it right so, yeah have you uh, tried it personally uh, cbd i have i have but for me all it did was like alleviate my anxiety and stress hmm. but yeah so i had to take it in larger amounts because my genetic makeup is such that i metabolize it faster hmm. but i don't metabolize thc as fast as i metabolize cbd so oh. yeah i have to consume more <laughs> cbd than i would consume thc to feel the effects of it nice um uh, i have actually been uh, reading up a lot about um, uh, you know this particular genre of uh, medicine mm-hmm. the gene editing and genetic editing and pretty much something mm-hmm. that got into so it's quite interesting mm-hmm. to hear about you know how technology has been used um, like you know a live example of uh, for instance cbd and uh how right. it affects each individual and so on uh because mm-hmm. right now mm-hmm. i've just you know read a lot about the theoretical aspect of it and not the yeah. application aspect of it so that's pretty mm-hmm. interesting <laughs> yeah it always is to see applications of all the theory that we read yeah um uh, i think another uh, like really interesting concept um that i've come across is crispr um mm-hmm. you know for the benefit of the users i think it would be great to have you break uh, down what crispr is oh absolutely i actually don't work with crispr myself but i work with people that work with crispr so anything i know about genetics until this point is self taught because until i joined this startup all i knew was computer science and different kinds of applications of computer science so all this that i know is something i've taught myself so if i somewhere make a mistake feel free to correct me sure so and crispr is a technology that like blows my mind each time i read about it i i think of something new and then i i figure out something new and i feel like it's the coolest technology in terms of genetics that exists today so crispr has a crispr stands for clustered regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats it's a mouthful nobody remembers it <laughs> but it's it's more like a magic tool that can be used to cure genetic diseases in humans but its its applications are not limited to just humans it's also used increasingly in agriculture and plants in livestock rearing and yeah all those other fields because my mom used to work with crispr when i was younger and like i had no clue about it until i joined this company so it was it was funny actually when i said hey mom this is a cool technology i learned about <laughs> she's like yes i've been working with this for 3 years now so yeah it's it's just i couldn't say magic tool because it's so hard to believe that something like this exists and 
it could take all the genetic diseases away from the world if it's approved in usage on humans. Mm -hmm. So CRISPR is actually a naturally occurring genetic feature of bacteria that's used to fight invading viruses. Mm -hmm. It's present in bacteria. And it gives researchers the ability to more easily add, remove, or even edit regions of an organism's DNA, which has potential applications in agriculture or study and treatment of different kinds of diseases. So CRISPR is a system that guides a protein called Cas9, which is used to cut the DNA. And it acts as a molecular scissor. And it's actually a three-step process. When you think about it, it's actually very simple, but it's not in real. The first step of the process is to provide genetic address for where the sequence needs that needs alteration is in the body or on the DNA. So DNA I, is made up of nucleotides called ATCG, which is adenine, thymine, cytosine, and guanine. And it's all the DNA is made up of, like ATCG, these sequences. So Cas9 uses the address provided by, by CRISPR to find the location on the DNA. And these locations are unique. The groups of these molecules like ATCG is what forms like a gene in the body. Mm. So, uh, once, once that address is found, it starts cutting. But how does this play out? CRISPR uses a guide RNA molecule, which is as big as 105 letters long, with 20 of which match the target sequence in the gene itself. So 20 of these belong to the address. The others you can think of are like a padding hmm. to just help it reach the destination where it needs to edit the DNA. So by swapping out the guide RNA and like inserting a different one, Cas9 can actually be directed to millions of different sites. You can think of it more like a GPS device in an autopilot car. You, you just put in the address, it drives itself, it goes and tells you, it does what you tell it to do. That's, that's kind of how it works. What happens after that? So there are two things that can happen, cutting to delete a mutation or cutting to edit a mutation. Cutting to delete, what it does is it cuts out the harmful parts on the DNA itself and reattaches the DNA back to how it was. But cutting to edit means that that space is left blank on the sequence itself and it substitutes some other protein, some other sequence of ATCGs in, on the DNA and it creates a template. So it's not blank. That's pretty much how it works. But the craziest part about all this is, I mean, about us humans is a single misspelled letter of the DNA could have destructive consequences on the human body itself. Change that one letter and you can just bid a goodbye to all genetic diseases and that just blows my mind. If people are born healthy with no, no genetic diseases, it's, it's amazing because yeah, there are so many things that could go wrong, but your body has still fought and it's still doing good. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. that's uh, the force of nature. I'm playing in everyone's head. <laughs> yeah, it is. It really yeah. is. But it does pose even a very 
you know philosophical um, yeah, or a spiritual question uh, to the human race about mm-hmm. uh, whether you know man can play god and uh, edit the genes which would affect future generations so mm-hmm. uh, there's a little bit more about you know the of course the good part is that the uh, gene editing would help cure certain diseases and uh, cure certain mutations like for instance mm-hmm. the sickle disease uh, where mm-hmm. uh, uh, if uh, there is a, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a problem in uh, the way red blood cells are made up it's like incomplete mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. can gene editing can actually actually cure uh, sickle disease for instance Right, right but but there is the other side of um, uh, genetic editing where you know uh, the, for instance you want to design how your baby is going to come out and you want yeah, to yeah. make him or her in a specific way in terms of look performance um, yeah, athleticism yeah. and intelligence and so on so of mm-hmm. course i'm not saying that it's a bad thing or it's a good thing um but mm-hmm. there is um uh, a, a kind of uh, the question that is posed is should man play god in that sense right i get that so that's always conflicted when you look at it that's always conflicted even in the community like what if we create this tool this is a genie in the bottle that we've kept it in for so long what happens if we let it out what we need to probably ask ourselves is what it means to be human now and in the future the central question of where modern genetics is taking us is quite simple it's about how far should we go in changing our genetic identity itself actually like the current research like like i said about crispr earlier like you could use technologies like crispr to cure some of the dreadful diseases like you mentioned sickle cell anemia right and that causes so much pain in the humans there's yeah loss of life loss of organs it's devastating to watch but should we rethink our own design if if so where do we draw the line between acceptable and morally repulsive because from from the time began from from time began it's evolution it's natural selection that works it's mutation it's genetic drift it's gene flow all of these have been random processes right and throughout the years that life has evolved on the earth it has been through natural selection itself but it's through errors in reproduction that that humans are given some or not humans any species that has evolved has a has a survival advantage whether it's over food or fight off the enemies it's anything it's because of mistakes that have happened in evolution but if the reproduction had been perfect the only living creatures on this planet would have been single celled organisms so i mean it's safe to say that we as humans are quite literally the product of reproductive mistakes and planetary cataclysms mm-hmm. and, and despite like life's remarkable resiliency 
up to this point, the evolution of life on this planet of ours have been passive. Everything has been random, all the processes, genes mutated randomly, natural selections were random. But right now, all that is changing and it will change significantly in the next decade and the coming years. So from this point onwards, our mutation will not be random. It will be self-designed. From this point onwards, our selection will not be natural. It will be self-directed. So what is happening is that we are on the verge of taking control over evolution and reinventing our species itself. And maybe we create byproducts by reinventing other species itself. But what happens next? The field of um, gene editing has always been like hazy. It's like going through a swamp. Nothing's ever clear until you discover the next big thing. So what exactly are we saying when, when we say improve human lives? Like, like you said, it will become a competition that I want my kid to be better because I want him to have a higher IQ. If there is a genetic advantage of having a higher IQ, I want my kid to have it. It's more like oh, my, I want my kid to be stronger so he can be an athlete. It, wouldn't it become like a race horse that you just bet on when you're gambling? With humans, it becomes more complex because of different cultural and political ideologies. And it will have different views about what, what improvement actually means for different sects of the society. For someone that's suffering from a genetic disease, they might say that improvement means them having freedom from that disease. But for someone who's, who's fine, it could mean that he wants to have a higher IQ or more stamina. Maybe he wants to be, an, be a super athlete. It could become like that, but the complex part of this is again something you mentioned. Like parents want to give their kids the best competitive advantage they can. And, and if this advantage is actually available through gene editing, how many parents would, wouldn't want their kid to have a healthier life or a higher IQ or a longer life free of any kind of diseases? Everyone wants that for their next generation. And science is always about improving the quality of life of humans, of the planet, everything. Does this mean we elevate the suffering or just get rid of the suffering altogether, right? Cool. I feel like we have arrived at a point in the history of evolution where we are able to design an improved future for the humans itself. So I don't think it's morally wrong because if disease, alleviating a disease, getting rid of a disease means better quality of life for someone, why not do it? And that's probably one of the clearer reasons about why gene editing should be pursued. But there are, yeah, there are some not so good reasons too. And this technology, if developed and taken further, will not be limited to curing illnesses. Hmm. Once it goes beyond, the cost of getting these advantages could turn out to be really expensive. Because I feel like we live in an age where there's so much 
disparity in the amount of wealth that each person has that like the richest people in the world have the most resources in the world so if if this technology does come out and it, it costs millions of dollars what happens to them and what happens to regular people that cannot afford it i mean there'll be like the rich people would be like superhumans maybe iron man or clark kent whoever and other people would just be like regular humans living trying to make it through the day yeah and of course the short term consequences would actually be very devastating and yeah i think there uh, would be eventually a, yeah. uh, because in the beginning it will be available only a small section of society like you said the wealthy right. but yeah. uh, eventually because of eco- economies of scale it's going to become cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and it's going to be available mm-hmm. to everyone exactly it should so, be honestly yeah yeah definitely uh do you think this will become something like you know like a, how vaccine is perceived now uh, there's a lot mm-hmm. of you know stigma around genetic editing but uh, there was a lot of stigma as well for vaccination right. before uh, yeah. it was implemented do you think it will become something like how vaccine is now and probably the next 10 years definitely because 10 years ago if you went up to someone and said i'll process your whole human genome and tell you your dna and your risk factors for 300 dollars they'd be like are you kidding me and they'd be like no i'm not comfortable doing that all you have to do is just give your saliva swab and they'll tell you what your genetic makeup is so as technology is scaling up what what used to be the first when they sequenced the first human genome it costed them i think close to 13 billion dollars for one person right now it costs like 150 dollars so and it's wow. becoming it's it's becoming more ad- adaptable because of how cheaper it is countries have have the provision where insurance covers their genetic testing just to help treat them better right so yeah so yeah like you said the short term consequences would be devastating when only one part of the society is able to afford it and the other one is not and that will begin to shake the whole moral core of the society i think but it will in my opinion it will get better with time because the thing is we have to survive as a species it's not like about one person or one family it's homo sapiens as a whole only then can we actually survive and it's we we need to understand that we actually win by numbers and not by isolating ourselves and saying i am immune to this it's it's how i think our species would survive and But it's very important no for that to happen would- yeah but i think that we no longer would be homo sapiens right at once we yeah we could be like yeah yeah we could be homo sapiens 2.0 like with yeah. companies like elon musk's neuralink i don't know if you heard have, about it i have read extensively on neuralink and that's a topic yeah. that i would love to have a conversation on Oh yeah like i've read a bunch of books on brain and that just blows my mind if you 
heard of Dr. V. S. Ramachandran. He no. was nominated for a Nobel Prize. Okay. His work was on what's called phantom limbs. So what happens is people lose their limbs and they like for whatever reason because of diabetes or they were in the military and one of their limbs is amputated they have in, increasing pain and irritation in that limb that doesn't exist like they feel itchy they feel pain how do you cure that yes the nerve endings are still active so this man dr vyas ramachandran he he had a 2 dollar solution for it he said just go stand in front of a mirror or create a box with mirrors in it put one of your hands in it so it shows the reflection and your brain will suddenly start thinking that you know you have that other hand and your pain will get better if you just massage that hand but that's another mind blowing book that wow. i recently read yeah i would definitely recommend it to you what's the book called the phantoms in the brain the phantoms in the brain nice yes well definitely there was, there was another book of his called tell tale brain as well hmm but that didn't blow my mind as much but phantoms in the brain was something that was really life changing for me because of so many different aspects of like neuroplasticity and Right. Like I think yeah. uh, neural link is a very interesting concept. I think he's going to be using that to solve um a lot of um you know uh, like how you said problems like those which uh, where the person did not have a limb and um he, you know just having of course this is a 2 dollar solution but having mm-hmm. neural link would have uh send signals to that part of the brain to solve that particular nerve ending issue right absolutely yeah so, so going forward i think as the technology pro- progresses and it's not to solve disabilities but um as a way of cognitive enhancement i've come up with yes. um uh, you know some understanding of where it could go in terms of advertising um uh-huh so uh, the concept that i part of like very abstract of course i i don't know as much as you do or someone who's into uh, new neurology or neuroscience but i'm i'm guessing that there will be a point where um internet will be um readily available or maybe another form of something like the internet and mm-hmm. let's say if you're thinking of having a pizza then there is mm-hmm. an opportunity for companies to um advertise themselves um in a specific way in a very regulated mm-hmm. way saying hey mm-hmm. you thought of pizza and this is one option that you could have oh yeah, yeah that's that's mind blowing so here is another like idea that us as a company thought about hmm. so we have this dna data of so many thousands of different people that have come to us and what happens if we try to like you know match patterns of what their likes and dislikes are what kind of books they read mm. can that go back to their dna or is it something else of course it's interesting to look at it like if a person has this particular gene and this particular mutation in that gene right. maybe he likes red cars so what is the chance that he likes red cars over blue cars like it's it's impossible like the possibilities of this are endless 
just because you have the data, you can do all kinds of analysis on yeah, it. Yeah, that's true. Is there and anything... just keep blowing yourself away. <laughs> Is there anything that you correlated with your data like that? Like uh, you're talking about, let's say, the color red or red uh, or something related to red. But is there anything that you guys have, you know, looked at data and then gone back and said, oh, you know, this is an interesting correlation, which you we can't talk actually, about. Because, yeah, because it's like all about the privacy of the users, right? Yeah. Just because you have the genetic data doesn't mean you can like stock them digitally everywhere and collect all of their data. <laughs> but I'm sure if you do that, it is possible to find some link. Maybe it's not, but it would be an interesting analysis to do. Yeah. So there's a lot to do yeah. with, you know, your cultural makeup and how you've grown up as a child and stuff yes. like that. But mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure uh, I read this one um, study where it was a large scale study where uh, paintings were shown like different options of paintings and throughout mm-hmm. the world like in africa and in india and in china and in mm-hmm. the us uh, and they were asked to select um, a painting mm-hmm. and the majority of users selected one particular type of a painting where there is a slight uh, uh, there's a water body there's um, mm-hmm. um, a little bit of like a grassland uh, mm-hmm. On the left, there is like a small hill and some green pastures. And on the right, there is a fruit bearing tree. So, mm-hmm. um, and then there was a deduction saying, you know, humans are looking at that specific painting because our brains are still wired to think like hunter gatherers. And we, right. know, uh-huh. yeah, so we know that, uh, you know, the hill provides like shelter. Uh, because there's mm-hmm. a cave there and water is readily available and there's a fruit bearing tree mm-hmm. and there is some sort of wow. an animal that you can hunt and eat and so on. Uh-huh. So I think these there are specific wirings in the brain that are still ancient. Like, Absolutely. Uh, like how maybe which could lead back to the red car or the red uh, color or so on. And there Absolutely. are specific wirings that are cultural. Yeah, actually, Dr. V.S. Ramachandran talks about that in his book, in Phantoms in the Brain. So he just gives like some random characters on one page and different sounds, hmm. different sounding words on another. And he says, match these patterns to the sounds. And then, you know, he, he did a research on that and he says that, you know, if there are oval like structures or circles or spheres that goes more with like the b or b kind of letters and because of how they're written or how they're wired in our brains right no Mm. matter what language you speak or where in the world you're from when it's a sharper pointy object they all like classify it to the similar sounding word so yeah, even even just that. And you were saying that hunter-gatherer mindset. It was yeah. in some other book I must have read. I can't remember which one, but like a lot of how we eat depends yeah. on that mindset of ours. Yeah. So uh, I read this book called The Hungry Brain. And uh, uh-huh. it's a great book. They basically, there's one guy who just takes down, uh, you know, how 
our environment, our genetic makeup, um, and mm-hmm. our certain areas in our brain, how they perceive food. So this is about, I think, the subline to the hungry brain is how you can control um, your overeating. So to paraphrase it. So uh, Mm -hmm. there basically talks about, um, you know, how our uh, brain is still wired like in the hunter-gatherer sense. And because of our environment, because of the mm-hmm. amount of sugar and so on, there's no portion control mm-hmm. that we can exercise. It's just in our uh, genetic makeup that we want to, um, because of how it used to be back then and like thousands of years ago, we, we wanted to gather food and we wanted to consume as much as possible because we didn't know when we are going to get it next, you know, mm-hmm. to put it simply. And we, our brain still thinks like that. Our brain still thinks, mm-hmm. okay, you know, uh, if I have this this particular ice cream, I'm going to get a rush of dopamine because I don't know when I'm going to um, uh, get another food source. So I'm going to end up overeating it. And that right. becomes like a consistent pattern and leads to obesity. Of course, there is uh, a different genetic disorder also that plays a role uh, in, comp- uh-huh. you know, setting your... Um, lipostat, for instance, uh, the amount of fat yeah. that you can have in your body. But mm-hmm. yeah. uh, brains are still wired in that specific way. So when I read that, I was like, hmm, that explains a lot because uh, <laughs> a lot of the yeah, a lot of our problem is just the environment that we are in. It's like an urban mm-hmm. environment with a, a Stone Age brain. Correct. Yeah. I know it's more like in that stone age they would hunt the animal, eat it, and then they would fast for who knows how long till they hunt it next. So there was that intermittent fasting stage where autophagy takes over your body and burns ketones. Yeah. So, but right now it's not like that. You people are eating like three thousand calories every meal, and they're complaining that they're getting fat. That's why. Yeah. I think as we progress i think there's gonna be um, more and more research and more and more data i think intermittent fasting is something that i've seen a lot of my friends who are into fitness adopt and they've seen like amazing results in terms of weight loss Um, and it's also do with you know how you think about how you approach food because i think breakfast is just something that's been even though I'm a huge advocate of having breakfast every day, uh, it's yeah. still something which is sold by these large food companies saying uh-huh. you know, your cereal, cereals and your cornflakes and all the sugary items. It's just been advertised. Oh, no. yeah. okay. It's not something which is needed. So yeah. Yeah. I think in that sense, uh, intermittent fasting helps bring in self-control, which you did not that you have uh, before yeah and for I think a lot of us it just helps if you just listen to your body and see what it's asking for it's yeah. not always asking for sugar maybe it's asking for a fruit maybe yeah. it says let me just eat like some lentils just yeah. dal with nothing and yeah intermittent fasting yeah I'm like I love intermittent fasting and for me, my metabolism works in such a way that I don't get hungry till 1 p.m. in the afternoon. 
but with between like 1 pm to 7 pm i eat like three or four meals and mm. i have to eat them otherwise yeah it's it gets really bad and i get very hungry in that stretch mm. so it's something that has worked for me i don't go out of my way to actually fast or do other things but i've seen people that have done intermittent fasting and have gotten amazing results and they continue doing that they've made it a part of their lives now and like you said i think breakfast they keep saying that it's the most important meal of the day but maybe it's not maybe you just need to listen to what your body says yeah it's very individualistic uh, i think like how yeah. you are you know i think there will be a point in time probably in the near future where like how you're using uh, you know genetic analysis to suggest um, certain treatments for diseases or prevention food. of disease i think for food mm-hmm. also it's going to come in saying you know this is actually we do that sorry i oh, i awesome. didn't mention that i guess yeah but yeah my company does that too and that's what i said when they make recommendations it says based on your genetic makeup what are the best foods for your body and what is harmful so yeah that has what causes to... most inflammation and so on yeah yeah mm. and of course everybody they doctors tell everyone to just not eat the inflammatory foods but that's your... so sorry yeah continue no that's it i was done okay okay so uh, i wanted to ask you what your view uh, i i know nutrition isn't like completely something that falls under your radar but um what's your view on dairy and dairy products so for some people they say it causes inflammation right i've tried to be vegan but i i feel like i used to eat meat i'm always like in between a lot of things i want i feel like eating meat i eat it it's like whatever my body asks me for i have nothing against people who want to consume dairy or their body can process it mm. but yeah if it can't and if it's having harmful effects on their body then why do it try something else mm. so if it works it works like i can't consume whey because it gives me a stomach ache okay but i can consume other things some somehow after like moving here I became lactose intolerant. I was fine in India. I would drink mm. whey and eat everything else. But I think here they like have add inject yeah. animals with so many hormones <laughs> that it actually shows up in the food and starts yeah. causing you problems. So, yeah. I think particularly with milk there is and yeah. there is a lot of lactose content than how it is in India. so yeah yeah stomach is not that used to that much amount of lactose going into your body and probably right that's why so many people in the us are lactose intolerant i i i know that even now when i come back to india and like drink regular milk nothing happens you are if i just drink it one morning after i wake up i'll be having like stomach aches the whole day and it's just weird even if it's like organic milk i've tried all kinds of milks and i've just stopped drinking it now so dairy products what i eat right now is like yogurt and sometimes cheese and paneer and that's it <laughs> yeah i think that yeah. those are the uh, some of the products that just helps your gut bacteria and so on yeah Pro- probiotics yeah, yeah. 
probiotic. <laughs> yes. Nice. Is there anything that else that you would like to add, or anything that you feel that we could be touched upon, but we could expand upon a little more? Oh, like with respect to what we talked about? Yes. Um, not really, but I'm actually excited to see where gene editing goes and how it would impact the society in the future. It would, like, it will definitely increase the lifespan of humans. Some mm. people say that's not a good thing because the Earth doesn't have place for it. But hey, you can go to Mars and live there. Yeah. And I came across that some in some book I read where gene editing can be used to modify the kind of skin you have. So it would be useful for interplanetary travel. And that just blew my mind. Right yeah. now you have to wear all these space suits and, you know, be in like a negative pressure chamber and then travel through. But yeah, that's going to change because of gene editing. Maybe not in, not right now, maybe in like 200 years from now, or 400 years from now. But I'm excited to see where it's going to go. I think the way, uh, <laughs> the speed at which technology is moving, I think it might happen much sooner than uh, we think it might happen. Because, yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. Because having everyone, you know, the Mars plan of, you know, inhabiting Mars is, isn't that far off? Um, it's pretty it isn't, close. yeah. Yeah, yeah so. because there are people that are prepping for it, right? Like there are 20 years old, 20 year olds that are going to college here and NASA has shortlisted some people and I think they're going to go in 2035 or something like that. Yeah. Reading about it somewhere just to like go live on Mars. And yeah. The Martian is such a great book and a movie to actually know yeah. what life on Mars would be like. Yeah. I think it's going to be a one-way ticket, right? It's not some... Um, something that they're, they're gonna come back. These first batch of uh, yeah. inhabitants. Yeah. Yes, that's true. Coming to gene editing, another question I, I just thought of mm -hmm. is: uh, Is there a regulatory body that's been set up for, um, you know, creating X Y Z rules um, so that it's not completely you know, misused in any way. So in the US, FDA is one such authority mm. that regulates how it's used and what it's used for. Like everything needs to be approved. There are like different boards, but I don't think there is one single like power of authority which should be there if it isn't already that controls and regulates these kind of activities. Right. Is but there, FDA definitely, yeah, is involved in it. Is there anything specifically that's been that's a strict no-no in, in, in the gene editing field? Like saying, you know, you can't do something. Um, right now, like with humans, it's still under debate, right? Although like they've cured two, three different genetic diseases in humans in the last couple of years. Yeah. It's still not like full fledged where they're curing everyone 
like yeah even checking the embryos although they do check for like genetic markers for diseases mm. while the kid is still an embryo but that's one thing that needs to advance in my opinion that still mm. hasn't but i don't think i've come across anything where it says like for instance you shouldn't cloning i think is um one of the things that is completely banned right off oh, yeah I'm, human cloning yeah, yeah i yeah. i'm not sure why like if you can have another albert einstein why not <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think there's a lot of stigma to it and a lot of people don't understand it and then there's that whole religious angle to um how um man playing god and stuff like that yeah that that's the thing right like with religious people or whatever like even agnostics maybe they're like oh why are we trying to disrupt the nature it's what we have done since the beginning of time disrupt everything in nature so you can evolve and become better and better right so yeah. i was reading this book called lifespan recently like last week and that was talking about animal cloning and how that's actually a thing you know somebody has a pet dog and they love the dog so much so they take its dna and preserve it so once the dog is gone they get an egg and use this dna to make another dog that looks exactly like that and yeah mm-hmm. that, that's actually legal i and i didn't know about it until i read that book oh wow so yeah and it seems they do that with a lot of livestock for like beef and pork because if there's one superior species or one superior kind even in those that is resistant to diseases and infection they want more of that so yeah. they say that they do a lot of like animal cloning and, and that's legal too hmm i, I that's yeah. the thing is quite interesting i didn't i didn't uh, come across that before oh really <laughs> yeah it's yeah. How, how you're you know you're playing on your emotions to uh kind of encourage a certain type of cloning so that's pretty interesting yeah like why is it wrong like i keep asking people that like if you can have another the same person someone's grandma died and mm-hmm. they can get grandma back why not i mean yeah it creates a lot of disparity in the society yeah i think so. once even um, technology uh, not not cloning because cloning is something we have already but once yeah. uh, something like neural link progresses further and further i think mm-hmm. the cloning and consciousness downloading onto the clone that mm-hmm. some oh yeah yeah that, that kind of a gray area is something that would be very interesting to see how um, humans would ask that spiritual question like what is death and afterlife right yeah yeah that's true like it will be more like remember that guy in iron man like forgot what his name is he creates another like and gives him that consciousness with that stone yeah, i forgot yeah. his name and that will be it'll be more like that i think <laughs> Yeah. yeah like with spirituality yeah this is definitely a hard debate because yeah there's always people asking why why mess with this why do that but i feel like we as a society we as humans 
have a moral duty to keep our species safe and keep advancing as much as possible right i think those questions and criticisms just help in some way because uh, the opposing views are what help in exactly. regulation you know yes yes absolutely because if if i have my own perspective and i i can't say i'm right all the time and somebody needs to tell me where i'm wrong and criticize me so i see a different view of how absolutely. things are So yeah. yeah, I think it is important to have all kinds of critiques. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much, Vaishnavi. It was so great talking to you. And it was lovely talking to you. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for calling me. Thank you for reaching out. Yeah, I, I think we covered. It was really, really nice talking to you because we covered a range of topics. Um, and yeah. i personally gained a lot of perspective on um you know gene editing and uh, cbd and you know uh, kind, mm-hmm. kind of like uh, an insight into what the future looked like because whatever is there in the us it's not right. so widely um not not even at the nascent stage here in india because they are pretty much outsourcing uh, whatever services that you guys might be getting a little bit right uh, there's nothing that has been uh, implemented for indian you know so it's i know and that needs to change at some point i feel because india is not very big on like human genetics but they're getting better at it now and hopefully like it's going to take off and it should reach greater heights so this people what they think as soon as they hear this is like whether it's artificial intelligence or machine learning in healthcare they start thinking that it's going to replace the doctors but you can never do that it it's just a tool that's going to help them diagnose stuff treat help treat patients better just improve the quality of life for the patient for the doctor for it it's going to change how diseases are treated and i think mm-hmm. that's what is the most important part of all of this <laughs> thank you so much yeah. vishnavi hey yeah thank you it was great talking to you it's been great talking to you too